Let me, let me pray and we'll get to it. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. Truly, truly, Lord God, we thank you for your precious written word. That we are not here to hear my thoughts or thoughts of some well-known author or something of that nature, but Lord, we, we want to hear from the word of God. I just thank you, Lord, that we have a copy of it in front of us. We can study it. We can read it. We can enjoy it. And I praise you, Lord God, for the preservation of the Bible. And I ask, Lord God, as we jump into this text this morning and think carefully about what has happened here, God, you would stir our own hearts and do the supernatural work that only you can accomplish. Freshly recognize my dependency upon you, Lord, to accomplish anything in this time. And I ask for that very thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, Genesis 19, that says 14. Um, I mean, I can go back to 14. So, Genesis 19, verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ammi. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. How many of you listen to Christian radio? Me either. So, <clears throat> I, find it, I find it interesting on Christian radio that they have sometimes the family passage or the Bible reading time of the day, right? And they usually read a passage of Scripture, and then they go and cut to the next advertisement. I have never once heard this passage read. <clears throat> I always find it interesting when people try to summarize the Bible into something and they're trying to put it in a, in a trying to be careful of my, descriptive, my descriptions here. They try to put it in, a, in a, a, a handable package, a package they can hand to somebody and say, oh, well, this is what the Bible's about. You know, people say the Bible's a love letter from God. Um, well, I understand to some level what they're talking about, but there's portions of it that I would never put in a love letter myself. <clears throat> there's folks who say basic instruction before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E, Right? And they're trying to put it in a small package so that way they can hand that out and people will say, now I know what the Bible is about. But the truth is, beloved, what's the Bible about? The Bible is about the 
putrid, rampant sin of man and the sovereign grace of God in redeeming a people for his namesake. That's what the Bible is about. And the tough part is, within that definition, there is a there are difficult portions to look at, to read, to preach. But how would I stand before you as your pastor if I preach Genesis chapters 1 through 18 and then 20 through the rest of the book? I would be um, not sticking to the truth of the word and not giving you the full counsel of God. So I've studied hard and looked carefully at this text, and let me just tell you, it says what it says, and they did what they did. But I have some questions that we'll get to here in just a bit. First, I want to remind you, the book of Genesis is a book of foundations. We started this, um, actually it was a year ago when we started the book of Genesis, and as we were starting this study, I, I said this is a book of foundations, because as you walk through this book, you will see there's things continually being laid down that we will see throughout. We see the consistency of the fallen nature in man. And as you walk through this, you see all kinds of things. I thought it was interesting. I told somebody the other day, I didn't realize how controversial the book of Genesis was going to be until I started to preach it. Because thus far, we've touched on creation, gender, male and female roles, and sin, and the results of sin, and the need for salvation from some other person. Everything I just said is utterly controversial in our world right now. Like, people angry. Just just angry if I were to talk like that. Even to say that there's different roles designed by God for men and women, people are ready to fight. And yet, these are foundational principles found in just the first few chapters of this book. And if you remember, speaking of controversy, where we just left off was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rampant homosexual sin going on in those towns and God destroying them and rescuing Lot. So let me remind you a couple things of what led to this point. What brought Lot and his daughters to be living in a cave such as this. So I'm just going to kind of go through this kind of quick, just so that way you can be brought up to speed and go, oh, okay, that's right, I remember when that happened. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Lot has been traveling with Abraham's group, as Abraham was called and said, leave and go to a place. And the Lord says, go to a place, I'll show you. Lot is a part of that traveling group with Abraham. Choosing the more pleasing property. If you remember, the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot started to bicker and fight with one another. And so Abraham, in a godly way, came to him and said, okay, you choose and I'll take what you don't choose. Which, I, I, if you, I'm sure you remember what I said. <laughs> um, what Abraham was getting across there was, I'll trust God. You pick what you want. And whatever the Lord has for me, I'll trust the Lord with that. And Lot chose what was more pleasing to the eye. That land looks beautiful. I'll go there. I want that. And Abraham said, okay, then I'll take the land that's not as beautiful. So Lot took off. We saw earlier that he was living outside of Sodom and then eventually moved into Sodom. We know that he was at the front gate, which 
commentators differ a little bit, but they kind of uh, are, they, what their consideration is that he was probably a man that has some kind of high placement in Sodom. Eventually, he was taken captive, rescued by Abraham and his mighty men, if you will, and then had this encounter with these two angels that came down to Sodom. Remember, the Lord said they'll go down to Sodom. They're going to check out Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to see what's going on. Now, did God already know what was going on? Yes, of course. But as they went down there, they saw it. And then all the men of Sodom, the older men, the young boys, came after to um, abuse these two angels. Lot hid them. Lot offered his two daughters to these people of this town. And eventually, the men were blind. They fled. And the angel said, get out of town, because God's going to destroy this place. Son holding back his wrath. And if you recall, Lot was even hesitant in that, to leave, to the point that it says the angels took them by the hand and basically just pulled them out and said, you have to leave. And as they fled, remember Lot's wife? One of the most interesting little statements made by Jesus Christ when he says, remember Lot's wife, because there's so much attached to that, and yet so few words that our Lord said. Remember Lot's wife. As Lot turned, or his wife turned back to look, she became a pillar of salt. And then he was told to flee to the hills, and he refused to do that. He wanted to go to Zor, as one commentator referred to as mini Sodom. Not a whole lot better, just a place that he wanted to go. He was scared to go to the hills, so he said, No, angels, I know you're angels, but no. I'm going to go to Zor, and that's where I'll be. Out of fear, he fled to Zor and did not go to the hills as he was told to do. Well, if you look and see what he's doing in our chapter this morning, or this portion of the chapter, he's immediately heading up to the hills and leaving Zor. Almost as if God was right and Lot was not. Now, the action done by the daughters here, and this is what's so interesting, is um, numerous of you over the last year have said, man, Genesis, there's some things in there that's going to be tricky. And I said, yeah, there is, there is. It's going, to be, it's going to be a rich study for us to walk through this because there are portions. And what that tells me, beloved, is that there is such a gravity to sin and the Bible doesn't blush in telling us the depths of the fallenness of man. Now, I realize if you talk about the depths of the fallenness of man in our current culture, everybody freaks out, but the reality is the Bible does not care what you think. It tells you what is. And the Bible says this. Lot are by what he perceives and what he's afraid of. He chose the prettier of the land because he perceived it to be better. And he's moving out of fear consistently. <clears throat> so, here they are. Now they're living in a cave. They've fled everything. Everything has been destroyed. If you recall, we were even, there was even a reference to the husbands or the to-be husbands of the two daughters in Sodom. They're nowhere to be found anymore. My best guess is they were destroyed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which makes you wonder, so what kind of men was he marrying his daughters off to? I don't know. But I have a guess. And so here he is with his two daughters living in a cave, driven by fear, and a, a real hopeless sense of future. 
Now, a question I ask consistently in this study that perhaps you're asking this morning is, why doesn't he go back to Abraham? It's a very simple answer. Back to Abraham. If you want to shine a little bit more light on your understanding of that, I'd love to hear it because um, I'm very curious about, about why Abraham's not even involved in the discussion of what's happening here. Okay, the daughter's motivation. This is very, very important. What's their motive in doing this task? Um, this is not just driven by some crazy, lustful action. There's more to it here. There's fear driving this decision, like father, like daughter. If you notice verse 31, it says, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in to lay with the father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So apparently from the text, the motive in the heart was, I think... We need to have offspring, and there's no way to do this because there's no husbands anymore. There's not even a chance of a husband. There's no cave next door. So what are we going to be doing here? And in this plan, and isn't this so true to life? Consider this, beloved. Isn't this so true to life that so often motives are actually mixed and not just black and white? Because the motive to have the lineage continue is not a bad motive in and of And it is very low down and dirty, the concept of let's get him drunk so he doesn't know what's happening and then take advantage of our dad in this way. Now, you could argue he was the one drinking, so he's not totally not at fault on this one. By the way, side note, um, just because alcohol is fun to talk about with Christians, um, Because some folks want to say, see right there is proof. Alcohol should never touch our lips. The tough part is there's other passages in our Bibles. And those other passages speak to celebrations and alcohol, joy and alcohol. And so I think we want to be very careful not to just take this text and argue our path or this text and argue our path. So here's my perspective, my theological perspective on alcohol from the Bible within a nanosecond. I think it's a gift from the Lord that can be enjoyed and and should be enjoyed. There, I said it out loud. But I don't trust you and I don't trust me. So be careful. The problem's not with alcohol. The problem's with you (laughs) and me. So if wisdom is, I stay away from it because I know myself, Lord bless you. Or I stay away from it because I don't even want the temptation in my life, Lord bless you. Or I take a drink every now and again to the glory of God, Lord bless you. I think you are, you are really in deep weeds if you land on one side or the other and try to fight hard from the Bible. There is such a thing as Christian freedom. That still exists, and you have it. The question is, what is wise? What is wise? All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient, so let's be careful. And from this text, I will say, Lot's not being careful. (laughs) So Lot takes 
more than a drink. He takes this into his system to the point that he is blind drunk and his daughter takes advantage of him and sleeps with her father. And then the next night, the other daughter does the very same thing. And it reminds me of Noah. Remember a few months ago, guys, when we were studying with Noah, and after everything was done with the ark, it says that Noah then planted a vineyard, and what did he do? Well, he drank the fruits of the vineyard, and he got drunk. And then his sons saw what was... I still don't know exactly what was happening in that text, because it does not give crystal clarity but something that was absolutely dishonoring to him in his drunken stupor. Well, much like that, here we are again where they have taken wine. By the way, really quick, just curiosity, they fled and have nothing to the point that they're living in a cave, but they have wine. Go figure. (laughs) I know that voice. So, the, the... The motives of these women, of this woman, was not driven by a lustful passion per se. You don't see that in the text. They were deeply concerned for their father's lineage and their own protection and safety, which would come from children, specifically male children that would come from them. Not the worst of motives, but carried out in a very, very sinful, despicable way. Now, As we look at this act of deception, perform, and they did utter dishonor to him. And what I find fascinating is there's not even a single consideration whatsoever to what would God think of what we're doing right here. Or even more than that, is it possible that God could potentially provide for us a husband? And we abstain from sin for the sake of waiting? And we wait to see what the Lord could accomplish? No, instead we'll do it. There's an important principle, beloved, that I don't want you to miss there. Oftentimes, oftentimes, fools rush in. It's those who say, I'm going to wait and trust the Lord on this one that typically are the ones who have um, great wisdom. But the one who goes, I'm going to help God and show God how this works. Well, we saw that with Abraham and um, uh, Hagar, right? Where, where uh, Sarah comes and goes, I got an idea. I have, a, I have a handmaiden. You take her. You have a child by her. That's the child of promise, not me. And Abraham says, okay, let's do that. We'll help God out on this one. And they have, they have Ishmael. What a mess. What an absolute mess. So, side Often, fools rush in. And those who wait upon the Lord for his power, his might, and his timing are the ones who usually walk in his power, his might, and his timing. So, but in this act of deception, the end justifies the means. Is this wrong? I think it would be interesting. If you were to ask these girls, is this wrong what you're doing tonight? In any other set of circumstances, would you have done that? Of course not. But this is a drastic time, so we're going to do it. The end will justify the means. Yes, we dishonor our Father. Yes, we dishonor God. Yes, we dishonor ourselves. 
But game on. So, now I want you to look at the outcome. Look at verse 36. It says, Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So both become pregnant by their father, and both of them have two sons who eventually will lead to two groups of people who will eventually be two large enemies to Israel. Sin always has consequences. <clears throat> I don't want to just harp on it real strong, but, but don't, we need to hear that over and over and over and over because Satan's deception is, you'll get away with it. Nobody knows. It's just our little secret. All that is lies. The reality, of beloved, is sin will always find you out. It will always not pan out. It will always fall apart. The wheels come off eventually when you sin thinking no one will know. Well, number one, you know. Number two, far more importantly, God knows. And then I would say eventually the Lord will make it known. So this morning, if there's a sin that you are concealing deep in your life right now, and you know it, and God's putting his finger on it right this instant, can I just warn you, that won't be a secret for long. He won't let it be a secret. Especially, beloved, if you're his, he won't let that be a secret long. It's coming out. Moab means from the father, and Ben-Ami means son of my kinsman. Two enemies of Israel, and yet even... Within the Moabites came Ruth, and we see the line of Christ flow from Ruth, which is amazing to me, to see God still drawing straight with crooked pencils. He's using the sin of men to accomplish his incredible goal. It's phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And here's a sad state. This is, this is one of the things that's touched my heart the most this week. This is the last thing we hear about Lot, as far as the story goes. I'm going to take you to New Testament text here in a bit. But as far as the Old Testament, this is the last we know. His daughters absolutely took advantage of him, made him look a fool. He's poor, living in a cave, in an incestual relationship with two grandsons that are going to be warring against Israel. How do you land there? How do you land there? So, right now, potentially, you are thinking, Lot is a bad guy. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 2. And I, I hit this note often because it's so vital to our interpretation of the whole Bible, okay? The New Testament authors are the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament authors are the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament. What the New Testament disciples, what the New Testament authors say about the Old Testament is the proper interpretation of the Old Testament. If you differ with the New Testament... 
and the interpretation of the apostles in the New Testament, of the Old Testament. You're wrong, and they're right. Jesus Christ rightly interpreted the Old Testament and, and shut down the scribes and Pharisees hardcore, as the apostles did as well. Why am I hitting that note so hard? Because listen to what he says about Lot. Lot, first, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. In other words, what you saw there, you're going to see here. If and if he rescued, what's the next word? What? Despicable is what it says in my, no, it says righteous. Righteous lot. I lost my place. Hang on one sec. There we go. Righteous Lot, and then a description of this man, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If that's the case, that the Lord can rescue him, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials, or the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Think about what's happening in our culture right now. Defiling passions and they hate authority. Parents, cops, um, teachers. You just, you just take every authority institution right now, all of them taking a beating. Well, there's your definite. We were told this would happen, beloved. We're here. But what I want to I draw your attention to is righteous lot, and the question I have is, how did this guy get righteous? He got righteous the exact same way you and I got righteous. If I make reference to righteous John or righteous Dennis or, right, or Roger, uh, if, I make <laughs> if I make reference to righteous anybody, I am not saying that you are righteous in your actions. Your righteousness is a righteousness that comes by what? Faith. The just shall live by faith. Your righteousness is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so as I read this with Lot, I go, I don't think this is a man who has no love for God. I don't think this is a man who, who is pushing away the Lord. I think this is a man who has faith in his heart. But there's also some tendencies in this man that perhaps some... How could he ever refer to you as righteous? Through the righteousness of his dear, precious son. This is good news. This is good news. I, I, a buddy of mine, a fellow pastor in the county and I were talking, and he, he was in this text, he was preaching through 2 Peter, and he said, this is good news for us. Because if he's righteous, Lot, I can be righteous, Dan. I am righteous in Christ. 
I have righteousness through him and through him alone. And that's the glorious news of the gospel. Now, there's a second point of application I want to draw to your attention this morning that might sting a bit. And if it does, that's the Lord. And I'm not trying to just be a jerk. Let it sting. Because it stings me too. I'm right there with you at this moment. When we read back in those Old Testament uh, history, the storyline of Lot, we can come away going, wow, this guy is really a lame brain. He offers his kids to these terrible, lustful people in Sodom and Gomorrah. What dad does that? He's constantly afraid. He chooses that which is more appealing to him. And the last thing we know is what we have looked at this morning, and we could potentially look at him and judge him in our hearts that I'm so glad we are not like that guy Lot. And so the end of the message would be Dan saying, so don't be Lot, let's close in prayer. Which is not the application. Rather, the scripture tells us, here's this man who's living in the midst of this place, and his soul is vexed. He is consistently upset about what's happening around him. I found it fascinating that this sin here with his own daughters, you can take take them out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of them. It's like I heard one guy say, you know, the biggest issue, the biggest sin issue they had when they came up with the concept of monasteries was they put monks there and there was sin in them and they ruined everything. But there's something very, I think we would be missing a huge point, guys, if we go past this and we miss the fact that this man was deeply moved by the sin in his culture. So this morning, guys, if you found yourself judging him as some idiot, I want to remind you of something. To some extent, you and I live in Sodom every day. Now, I know some folks might give Sodom, this is America. Okay? Listen to a list I wrote out. Rampant distribution of pornography. Denial of God-assigned gender. Fully accepted, promoted, and encouraged homosexuality and bisexuality. An absolute devotion and love for violence. Flooded with drugs and alcohol and the next buzz coming around the corner. Governed by a crooked, deceptive government. An ever-rising divorce rate. Fully accepted and promoted materialism. The key to life is to get all that you can. Atheism, one of the growest quote-unquote religions. Absolute commitment, funding, and argumentation for the killing of babies inside of their moms. How comfortable are you in Sodom? Because as I look at Lot, and I actually sitting there in my own self-righteousness, judging him, the tables were turned, and I had to go, no, wait a second. 
that Scripture says Lot was consistently pressed in his heart with the, the sick world he's living in. And how many days in the last three weeks have I found myself comfortable living in Sodom and Gomorrah? At ease. And my heart not bothered by what's happening here. So where does that leave us? Well, my challenge, beloved, is that what a question I want to ask you is, if you are comfortable and not bothered at all about what's happening in our culture, in our country, in our world, just push it all the way out, if you're not bothered, why aren't you bothered? Why, why, doesn't, it, why doesn't it bother you? Why doesn't it bother you? Why doesn't it bother us? Why, why are we not vexed in our soul? every single day to consider millions of dollars paid to a quote-unquote physician to take the life of a baby. Are you kidding? I am convinced that God in His sovereign grace is going to turn up the heat and He is going to strengthen His church and wake them up out of their stupor. Because man, oh man, have we ever been in a lap of luxury as American Christians. Perhaps that stings. I'm convinced the reason it stings is because God loves us and God wants to remind us of that which is and that which is not. That which is true and that which is just a fad, just a lie. A wake-up call from the living God when he comes into our lives and says, you know you're not staying here, right? It's kind of like if you go on vacation, you walk in the, walk in the hotel room and there's a Andy's mints on the pillow. If you're lucky. <laughs> Good one, Mary Ellen. And, and you see that. And as you walk around, it's just like, wow, everything's waiting for me. The pool, I can smell the chlorine. It's down there waiting for me. This is, this is incredible. You know you're not staying, right? <laughs> you're going back home where you make the bed, right? Oh, right, right. Well, my wife makes the bed. But when, when you go back there, you're going to go back into that life. You're going to leave. I think the Lord at times kindly and graciously says, hey, real quick, just reminder, this isn't your home. You're here for a purpose. You are on a mission in this place. I've put you on mission. Not to be comfy. That's not why you're here. And so my, my challenge, guys, is not just feel bad about this. My challenge is, Maybe God would remind all of us afresh, you are here for a reason, you're here for a purpose, and it is the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this sick, dying, lost world with all of its insanity needs so badly the strong, stable, clear-thinking Christian to step into these conversations and point directly to the truth of the Word and let the Word of God do the work. The world is in desperate need of you, saint. 
That's why you're here. Father, I thank you for your word. 